Chapter Twelve, Part Two of the Life of Cicero, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa Jevons. The Life of Cicero, Volume Two by Anthony Trollope. Chapter Twelve: Cicero's Philosophy, Part Two. Our next work contains the five books of the Tusculan Disputations addressed to Brutus, Tusculanarium Disputationum, Ad M. Brutum, Libri Primus, Secundus, Tertius, Quartus, and Quintus. That is the name that has at last been decided by the critics and annotators as having been probably given to them by Cicero. They are supposed to have been written to console himself in his grief for the death of Tullia. I have great doubt whether consolation in sorrow is to be found in philosophy, but I have none as to the finding it in writing philosophy. Here I may add that the poor generally suffer less in their sorrow than the rich, because they are called upon to work for their bread. The man who must make his pair of shoes between sunrise and the moment at which he can find relief from his weary stool has not time to think that his wife has left him and that he is desolate in the world. Pulling those weary threads, getting that leather into its proper shape, seeing that his stitches be all taut, so that he do not lose his place among the shoemakers, so fills his time, that he has not a moment for a tear. And it is the same if you go from the lowest occupation to the highest. Writing Greek philosophy does as well as the making of shoes. The nature of the occupation depends on the mind, but its utility on the disposition. It was Cicero's nature to write. Will any one believe that he might not as well have consoled himself with one of his treatises on oratory? But philosophy was then to his hands. It seems to have cropped up in his later years, after he had become intimate with Brutus. When life was again one turmoil of political fever, it was dropped. In the five books of the Tusculan Disputations, still addressed to Brutus, he contends, one, that death is no evil, two, that pain is none, three, that sorrow may be abolished, four, that the passions may be conquered, five, that virtue will suffice to make a man happy. These are the doctrines of the Stoics, but Cicero does not in these books defend any school especially. He leans heavily on Epicurus, and gives all praise to Socrates and to Plato, but he is comparatively free. Nullius adductus jurare in verba magistri, as Horace afterwards said, probably ridiculing Cicero. I live for the day. Whatever strikes my mind as probable, that I say. In this way I alone am free. Let us take his dogmas and go through them one by one, comparing each with his own life. This, it may be said, is a crucial test to which but few philosophers would be willing to accede, but if it shall be found that he never even dreamed of squaring his conduct with his professions, then we may admit that he employed his time in writing these things, because it did not suit him to make his pair of shoes. Was there ever a man who lived with a greater fear of death before his eyes, not with the fear of a coward, but with the assurance that it would withdraw him from his utility, and banish him from the scenes of a world in sympathy with which every pulse of his heart was beating? Even after Tullia was dead, the Republic had come again for him, and something might be done to stir up these faineant nobles. What could a dead man do for his country? 
look back at Cicero's life and see how seldom he has put forward the plea of old age to save him from his share of the work of attack. Was this the man to console himself with the idea that death was no evil? And did he despise pain, or make any attempt at showing his disregard of it? You can hardly answer this question by looking for a man's indifference when undergoing it. It would be to require too much from philosophy to suppose that it could console itself in agony by reasoning. It would not be fair to insist on arguing with Cato in the gout. The clemency of human nature refuses to deal with philosophy in the hard straits to which it may be brought by the malevolence of evil. But when you find a man peculiarly on the alert to avoid the recurrence of pain, when you find a man with a strong premeditated antipathy to a condition as to which he pretends an indifference, then you may fairly assert that his indifference is only a matter of argument. And this was always Cicero's condition. He knew that he must at any rate lose the time passed by him under physical annoyance. His health was good, and by continued care remained so to the end, but he was always endeavouring to avoid seasickness. He was careful as to his baths, careful as to his eyes, very careful as to his diet. Was there ever a man of whom it might be said with less truth that he was indifferent as to pain? The third position is that sorrow may be abolished. Read his letters to Atticus about his daughter Tullia, written at the very moment he was proving this. He was a heart-broken, sorrow-stricken man. It will not help us now to consider whether in this he showed strength or weakness. There will be no doubt about it, whether he gained or lost more by that deep devotion to another creature which made his life a misery to him because that other one had gone, whether, too, he might not have better hidden his sorrow than have shown it even to his friend. But with him, at any rate, it was there. He can talk over it, weep over it, almost laugh over it. But if there be a thing he cannot do, it is to treat it after the manner of a Stoic. His passions should be conquered. Look back at every period of his life and see whether he has ever attempted it. He has always been indignant, or triumphant, or miserable, or rejoicing. Remember the incidents of his life before and after his consulship, the day of his election, and the day of his banishment, and ask the philosophers why he had not controlled his passion. I shall be told, perhaps, that here was a man over whom, in spite of his philosophy, his passion had the masterhood. But what attempt did he ever make? Has he shown himself to us to be a man with a leaning towards such attempts? Has he not revelled in his passions, feeling them to be just, righteous, honest, and becoming a man? Has he regretted them? Did they occasion him remorse? Will any one tell me that such a one has lived with the conviction that he might conquer the evils of the world by controlling his passions? That virtue will make men happy he might probably have granted, if asked, but he would have conceded the point with a subterfuge. The commonest Christian of the day will say as much, but he will say it in a different meaning from that intended by the philosophers who had declared, as a rule of life, that virtue would suffice to make them happy. To be good to your neighbours will make you happy in the manner described by Cicero in the fifth book, De Finibus, Love those who come near you be good to your fellow-creatures, 
think when dealing with each of them what his feelings may be, melt to a woman in her sorrow, lend a man the assistance of your shoulder, be patient with age, be tender with children, let others drink of your cup and eat of your loaf, where the wind cuts there lend your cloak. That virtue will make you happy, but that is not the virtue of which he spoke when he lay down his doctrine. That was not the virtue with which Brutus was strong when he was skinning those poor wretches of Salamis. Such was the virtue with which the heart of Cicero glowed when he saw the tradesmen of the Cilician town come out into the market-place with their corn. Cicero begins the second book of the Tusculans by telling us that Neoptolemus liked to do a little philosophy now and then, but never too much at a time. With himself the matter was different. In what else is there that I can do better? Then he takes the bit between his teeth and rushes away with it. The reader feels that he would not stop him if he could. He does little, indeed, for philosophy, but so much for literature that he would be a bold man who would want to have him otherwise employed. He wrote three treatises, De Natura Deorum, had he declared that he would write three treatises to show the ideas which different men had taken up about the gods, he would be nearer to the truth. We have an idea of what was Cicero's real notion of that dominans in nobis Deus, that god which reigns within us, and which he declares in Scipio's dream to have forbidden us to commit suicide. Nothing can be further removed from that idea than the gods of which he tells us, either in the first book, in which the gods of Epicurus are set forth, in the second, in which the Stoics are defended, or the third, in which the gods, in accordance with the Academy, are maintained. Not but that either, for the one or for the other, the man who speaks up for that sect does not say the best that is to be said. Velleius is eloquent for the Epicureans, Balbus for the Stoics, and Cotta for the Academy and in that which each says there is to be found a germ of truth, though indeed Cicero makes his Epicurean as absurd as he well can do. But he does not leave a trace behind of that belief in another man's belief, which an energetic preacher is sure to create. The language is excellent, the stories are charming, the arguments as used against each other are courteous, clever, and such that on the spur of the moment a man cannot very well reply to them but they leave on the mind of the reader a sad feeling of the lack of reality. In the beginning he again repeats his reasons for writing on such subjects so late in life. Being sick with ease, and having found the condition of the Republic to be such that it has to be ruled by one man, I have thought it good, for the sake of the Republic, to write about philosophy, in a language that shall be understood by all our citizens, believing it to be a matter of great import to the glory of the state, that things of such weight should be set forth in the Latin tongue. Not that the philosophy should be set forth, but what the different teachers said about it. His definition of eternity, or rather the want of definition, is singular. There has been from all time an eternity, which no measurement of time can describe. Its duration cannot be understood, that there should have been a time before time existed. Then there comes an idea of the Godhead, escaping from him in the midst of his philosophy, modern, human, and truly Ciceronian. 
lo it comes to pass that this god of whom we are sure in our minds and of whom we hold the very footprints on our souls can never appear to us by and by we come to a passage in which we cannot but imagine that cicero does express something of the feeling of his heart as for a moment he seems to lose his courtesy in abusing the epicureans therefore do not waste your salt of which your people are much in want in laughing at us indeed if you will listen to me you will not try to do so it does not become you it is not given to you you have not the power i do not say this to you he says addressing velleius for your manners have been polished and you possess the courtesy of our people but i am thinking of you all as a body and chiefly of him who is the father of your rules a man without science without letters one who insults all without critical ability without weight without wit cicero i think must have felt some genuine dislike for epicurus when he spoke of him in such terms as these then alas there is commenced a passage in which are inserted many translated verses of the greek poet aratus cicero when a lad had taken in hand the phenomena of aratus and here he finds a place in which can be introduced some of his lines aratus had devoted himself to the singing of the stars and has produced for us many of the names with which we are still familiar the twins the bull the great bear cassiopeia the waterman the scorpion these and many others are made to come forward in hexameters and by cicero in latin as by aratus in their greek guise we may suppose that the poem as translated had fallen dead but here it is brought to life and is introduced into what is intended as at least a rationalistic account of the gods and their nature nothing less effective can be imagined than the repetition of uninteresting verses in such a place for the reader who has had epicurus just handled for him is driven to remember that their images are at any rate as false as the scheme of epicurus and is made to conclude that balbus does not believe in his own argument it has been sometimes said of cicero that he is too long the lines have probably been placed here as a joke though they are inserted at such a length as to carry the reader away altogether into another world further on he devotes himself to anatomical research which for that age shows an accurate knowledge but what has it to do with the nature of the gods when the belly which is placed under the stomach becomes the receptacle of meat and drink the lungs and the heart draw in the air for the stomach the stomach which is wonderfully arranged consists chiefly of nerves the lungs are light and porous and like a sponge just fit for drawing in the breath they blow themselves out and draw themselves in so that thus may be easily received that sustenance most necessary to animal life the third book is but a fragment but it begins well with pleasant raillery against epicurus cotter declares that he had felt no difficulty with epicurus epicurus and his allies had found little to say as to the immortal gods his gods had possessed arms and legs but had not been able to move them but from balbus the stoic they had heard much which though not true was nevertheless truth-like in all these discourses it seems that the poor epicureans are treated with but a moderate amount of mercy but cotter continues and tells many stories of the gods 
he is interrupted in his tale, for the sad hand of destruction has fallen upon the manuscripts, and his arguments have come to us unfinished. It is better, he says, not to give wine to the sick at all, because you may injure them by the application. In the same way, I do not know whether it would not be better to refuse that gift of reason, that sharpness and quickness of thought, to men in general, than to bestow it upon them so often to their own destruction. It is thus that is discussed the nature of the gods in this work of Cicero, which is indeed a discussion on the different schools of philosophy, each in the position which it had reached in his time. The De Natura Deorum is followed by two books De Divinatione, and by the fragment of one De Fato. Divination is the science of predicting events. By Fatum, Cicero means destiny, or that which has been fixed beforehand. The three books together may be taken as religious discourses, and his purport seems to have been to show that it might be the duty of the state to foster observances, and even to punish their non-observance, for the benefit of the whole, even though they might not be in themselves true. He is here together with his brother, or with those whom, like his brother, he may suppose to have emancipated themselves from superstition, and tells him, or them, that though they do not believe, they should feign belief. If the augurs declare by the flight of birds that such a thing should be done, let it be done, although he who has to act in the matter has no belief in the birds. If they declare that a matter has been fixed by fate, let it be as though it were fixed, whether fixed or no. He repudiates the belief as unreasonable or childish, but recommends that men should live as though they believed. In such a theory as this, put thus before the reader, there will seem to be dissimulation. I cannot deny that it is so, though most anxious to assert the honesty of Cicero. I can only say that such dissimulation did prevail then, and that it does prevail now. If any be great enough to condemn the hierarchs of all the churches, he may do so, and may include Cicero with the Archbishop of Canterbury. I am not. It seems necessary to make allowance for the advancing intelligence of men, and unwise to place yourself so far ahead as to shut yourself out from that common pale of mankind. I distrust the self-confidence of him who thinks that he can deduce from one acknowledged error a whole scheme of falsehood. I will take our Protestant Church of England religion, and will ask some thoughtful man his belief as to its changing doctrines, and will endeavour to do so without shocking the feelings of any. When did Sabbatarian observances begin to be required by the word of God, and when again did they cease to be so? If it were worth the while of those who have thought about the subject to answer my question, the replies would be various. It has never begun. It has never wavered and there would be the intermediate replies of those who acknowledge that the feeling of the country is altering and has altered. In the midst of this, how many a father of a family is there who goes to church for the sake of an example? Does not the church admit prayers for change of weather? Ask the clergyman on his way from church what he is doing with his own haystack, and his answer will let you know whether he believes in his own prayers. He has lent all the sanctity of his voice to the expression of words which had been written when the ignorance of men as to the works of nature was greater. 
or written yesterday because the ignorance of man has demanded it or they who have demanded it have not perhaps been ignorant themselves but have thought it well to subserve the superstition of the multitude i am not saying this as against the religious observances of to-day but as showing that such is still the condition of men as to require the defence which cicero also required when he wrote as follows former ages erred in much which we know to have been changed by practice by doctrine or by time but the custom the religion the discipline the laws of the augurs and the authority of the college are retained in obedience to the opinion of the people and to the great good of the state our consuls claudius and junius were worthy of all punishment when they put to sea in opposition to the auspices for men must obey religion nor can the customs of our country be set aside so easily no stronger motive for adhering to religious observances can be put forward than the opinion of the people and the good of the state there will be they who aver that truth is great and should be allowed to prevail though broken worlds should fall in disorder round their heads they would stand firm amidst the ruins but they who are likely to be made responsible will not cause worlds to be broken such i think was the reasoning within cicero's mind when he wrote these treatises in the first he encounters his brother quintus at his tusculan villa and there listens to him discoursing in favour of religion quintus is altogether on the side of the gods and the auspices he is as we may say a gentleman of the old school and is thoroughly conservative in this way he has an opportunity given him of showing the antiquity of his belief stare super vias antiquas is the motto of quintus cicero then he proceeds to show the two kinds of divination which have been in use there is the one which he calls ars and which we perhaps may call experience the soothsayer predicts in accordance with his knowledge of what has gone before he is asked to say for instance whether a ship shall put to sea on a friday he knows or thinks he knows or in his ignorance declares that he thinks that he knows that ships that have put to sea on friday have generally gone to the bottom he therefore predicts against the going to sea although the ship should put forth on the intended day and should make a prosperous voyage the prophet has not been proved to be false that can only be done by showing that ships that have gone to sea on friday have generally been subject to no greater danger than others a process which requires the close observations of science to make good that is art then there is the prediction which comes from a mind disturbed one who dreams let us say or prophesies when in a fit as the sibyl or epimenides of crete who lived a hundred and fifty-seven years but slept during sixty-four of them quintus explains as to these that the god does not desire mankind to understand them but only to see them he tells us many amusing details as to prophetic dreams and the doings of soothsayers and wise men the book so becomes chatty and full of anecdotes and interspersed with many pieces of poetry some by others and some by cicero here are given those lines as to the battle of the eagle and the dragon which i have ventured to call the best amidst the nine versions brought forward we cannot but sympathize with him in the reason which he prefixes to the second book of this treatise 
I often ask myself, and turn in my mind, how best I may serve the largest number of my fellow-citizens, lest there should come a time in which I should seem to have ceased to be anxious for the State. And nothing better has occurred to me than that I should make known the way of studying the best arts, which, indeed, I think I have now done in various books. Then he recapitulates them. There is the opening work on philosophy, which he had dedicated to Hortensius, now lost. Then, in the four books of the academics, he had put forward his ideas as to that school, which he believed to be the least arrogant and the truest, meaning the new academy. After that, as he had felt all philosophy to be based on the search after good and evil, he had examined that matter. The Tusculan inquiries had followed, in which he had set forth in five books the five great rules of living well. Having finished this, he had written his three books on the nature of the gods, and was now in the act of completing it, and would complete it by his present inquiries. We cannot but sympathise with him, because we know that though he was not quite in earnest in all this, he was as near it as a man can be who teaches that which he does not quite believe himself. Brutus believed it, and Cato, and that Villaeus, and that Balbus, and that Cotta. Or, if perchance any of them did not, they lived and talked and read, and were as erudite about it as though they did. The example was good, and the precepts were the best to be had. Amidst it all he chose the best doctrine, and he was undoubtedly doing good to his countrymen, in thus representing to them in their native language the learning by which they might best be softened. Graecia capta ferum victorum cepit, et artes intulit agresti latio. Footnote. Horace, Epistles, Book 2, 1. Greece conquered Greece, her conqueror subdued, and Rome grew polished, who till then was rude. Cunnington's translation. End of footnote. Here, too, he explains his own conduct in a beautiful passage. My fellow citizens, says he, will pardon me, or perhaps will rather thank me, for that when the Republic fell into the power of one man, I neither hid myself, nor did I desert them, nor did I idly weep or carry myself as though angry with the man or with the times, nor yet, forsooth, so flattering the good fortune of another, that I should have to be ashamed of what I had done myself. For I had learned this lesson from the philosophy of Plato, that there are certain changes in public affairs. They will be governed now by the leaders of the state, then by the people, sometimes by a single man. This is very wise, but he goes to work and altogether destroys his brother's argument. He knows that he is preaching only to a few, in such a manner as to make his preaching safe. His language is very pleasing, always civil, always courteous, but not the less does he turn the arguments of his brother into ridicule. And we feel that he is not so much laughing at his brother as at the gods themselves. They are so clearly wooden gods, though he is aware how necessary it is for the good of the state that they shall be received. He declares that in accordance with the theory of his brother, meaning thereby the Stoics, it is necessary that they, the gods, should spy into every cottage along the road, so that they may look after the affairs of men. It is playful, argumentative, and satirical. At last he proposes to leave the subject, 
Socrates would also do so, never asking for the adhesion of any one, but leaving the full purport of his words to sink into the minds of his audience. Quintus says that he quite agrees to this, and so the discourse de divinatione is brought to an end. Of his book on fate we have only a fragment, or the middle part of it. It is the desire of Cicero to show that in the sequence of affairs which men call life, it matters little whether there be a destiny or not. Things will run on, and will be changed, or apparently be changed, by the action of men. What is it to us whether this or that event has been decreed while we live, and while each follows his own devices? All this, however, is a little tedious, taken at the end of so long a course of philosophy, and we rise at last from the perusal with a feeling of thankfulness that all these books of Chrysippus of which he tells us are not still existent to be investigated. Such is the end of those works which I admit to have been philosophical, and of which it seems to be understood that they were the work of about eighteen months. They were all written after Caesar's triumph, when it was no longer in the power of any Roman to declare his opinion either in the Senate or in the Forum. Caesar had put down all opposition, and was made supreme over everything, till his death. The De Fato was written indeed after he had fallen, but before things had so far shaped themselves as to make it necessary that Cicero should return to public life. So, indeed, were the three last moral essays which I shall notice in the next chapter, but in truth he had them always in his heart. It was only necessary that he should send them forth to scribes, leaving either to himself or to some faithful tyro the subsequent duty of rearrangement. But what a head there was there to contain it all! End of chapter 12